The Copenhagen view was this. Yes, the, in quantum mechanics, the physicist is building models of the phenomena, but he only builds a model of what's on the other side beyond his instrument. There's always this dividing line that he only makes a model of what is beyond the instrument. Now, if he wants to model the instrument too, fine, but then he steps one step back and the dividing line is a bit closer, that's all, okay? Um, so that means that you cannot have a, you can never think that the world is a quantum mechanical system because there's no dividing line anymore if you say that, right? So this was the point, their point of view, their, um, um, you know, observer, it's always observer relative. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 125. And this episode is with Bas von Frossen, who is the Mikosh Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at Princeton University and also a distinguished professor of philosophy at San Francisco State University. Boss, as I think I may mention a couple of times in the episode, is a legend in the philosophy of science, though he's also done a lot of work in other areas as well, notably epistemology and logic, and both of those subjects make their appearances in our discussion as well. But the focus of the conversation or the episode is rather esoteric and is in this sense, I think, fair to say it's a, a throwback to the pure philosophy area of this show, which I think of maybe as episodes 30 to 99. And we talk about a shift in the philosophy of science in the second half of the 20th century from the view of the logical positivists on the one hand, like Reichenbach and Carnap, who had a very formal mathematical approach to the philosophy of science to philosophers who adopted the semantic approach, which more closely aligns with or aligned with uh, how working scientists viewed and experienced the field. So along the way, we touch on a number of other major issues in the philosophy of science that were raised around the same time, including the question of scientific realism, Boss is well known as a scientific anti-realist. Thomas Kuhn and his book, The Structure of Scientific Realism, and then the various interpretations of quantum mechanics. I should also say that many of you have noticed that Robinson Eats is no more. And while this is true, I can assure you that Robinson still eats, however. And if you ever join me as I ate, thank you. And I just finished a pint of lemon curd ice cream in your honor. So I should also mention that likes, comments, subscribes, these are all endlessly appreciated. And then, of course, there is this, this shirt I'm wearing, which you can find at Robinson's Fashion Empire, which can itself be found either at robinsonsfashionempire.com or at robinsonerhart.com. Now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Boss. Boss, you you have a very long and storied career in the philosophy of science. 
And I'm wondering how, just how it started. Was that always your main interest in philosophy? No, no, it's, um, it wasn't, but it was, it came pretty quickly. So, you know, I, I got interested in, in high school. I was working uh, part-time in the public library and uh, reading all the stuff I could find going around, you know, around philosophy. Um, and I thought that yoga was a sort of philosophy, etc. You know, I got a little confused, obviously, to begin. But then I read um, a dialogue by Plato, the Fido, and that really opened my eyes to what it could be. But so, you know, that's pretty far from philosophy of science. And um, I thought that I might maybe combine literature and philosophy. But then in university, my second year, I was working part-time in the university library, you know, taking the same opportunity to find books, right? And I came across Reichenbach's Philosophy of Space and Time. And that really had a great, great impact on me. Um, I've, I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, I mean, I could, that philosophy of science, philosophy could be done that way. Philosophy of science could be done that way. In this, you know, very professional, interesting way, where you really went deeply into the theories. So that's what decided me. Hmm. We uh, we we both spent a lot of time in libraries and working part time in the public library is a great way to get started in academia. But just to clarify, when you're saying that you liked the way that Reichenbach did philosophy of science and he got deep into the theories. You're saying that you were very interested in a philosophy of science that took science itself very seriously and wasn't just armchair philosophizing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and also, of course, Reichenbach makes it clear that what he's talking about was very revolutionary when it was happening. Um, the idea that space could be non-Euclidean, how can we imagine that? And he tries to take you through it, right? Um, um, that uh, time simultaneity could be relative, you know, and and he doesn't shy away from the mathematics, you know. And I was studying mathematics at the same time. His mathematics, the mathematics he was talking about, was beyond what I was studying. But the terms, like terms from calculus, they were all there, the same as I knew. So I thought, oh, so that is how you get into it, you know? Yeah, it was a revelation for me. Well. Moving toward the uh, topic of our conversation today, I wanted to start with some background. And so logical positivism was a hugely influential movement in philosophy and one that's still, I think, incredibly intuitively appealing, but it hasn't come up and certainly not in any detail on the show so far. So since much of what we're going to talk about in the development of the philosophy of science is as a reaction in part to logical positivism, maybe it would behoove us if I started by asking just what were its general tenets and who its most important figures? Well, um, the tradition was centered on two circles you know there were these philosophy circles in europe um before the before the second world war um there were a number of them but the two main ones in this tradition were the vienna circle and the berlin circle and the vienna circle had you know Carnap famously um and the berlin circle had reichenbach famously um and 
they developed um, an approach to science that was in itself very successful, but afterward, of course, we began to see limitations. And the main, the main influence on philosophy science teaching was from the Carnap side, the Vienna Circle side, uh, which was very formal, right? And the approach to science was, first of all, for all of them, that you approach the big theories. There were huge theories, huge theoretical developments um, in the first half of the 20th century, starting at the, the end of the 19th century. Um, Darwin's theory of evolution, um, Einstein's uh, theory of relativity, the quantum mechanics, the next big revolution, right? And so the focus was on these big theories, right? And then the other part, and the other part of it, and this was peculiar to Carnap and Vienna, is the theories were to be conceived of in the way that theories were conceived of in logic and mathematics, in the foundations of mathematics. So, um, and that means that a theory is a set of sentences. It has axioms, it has theorems, right? And then the difference from math was that, well, the vocabulary had to be linked to things that we could touch, so to speak, right? Um, now, I think that, you know, there was a lot of traditional philosophy behind this. Um, you know, in the 17th century, um, you know, the, the word was, you develop your philosophical theory more geometrical. In other words, more or less in the form of Euclid's geometry, you know? And, um, and so that is what, like, uh, um, Descartes and, well, Descartes especially showed how to do is also in, in science, right? Um, well, you know, that, there was something very right about it, and there was a lot that was learned from this, um, you know, the, um, a lot of insight in the, in, in the theory of relativity especially, I think, right? But, it was also the more logical and the more formal it got, the more it was out of touch with what was actually happening in science, even in the science that they, they targeted. Hmm. Okay, I have a, a few thoughts. One, just a, a personal anecdote. I don't know if you, if you, you might, you probably know the name Heim Gaifman, but Heim is a logician at yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah at Columbia, and he. He's my, I'd say, father or grandfather philosophy figure, and he just has the most amazing CV of all time. So he was he was studying with Abraham Robinson in Israel. Then he went to UCLA to be Carnap's research assistant, and then Tarski poached him to Berkeley. But I always, whenever I hear Carnap, I just think about that because Heim thinks Heim thinks that Carnap is one the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, but also is always talking about what a a wonderful guy he was. So that's just what I think about when I hear Carnap. But it is very interesting the way that, I mean, the semantic approach, what we're going to talk about uh, was a reaction to logical positivism because of what you said about logical positivism becoming very distant from the way that 
science was actually practiced. But it is also interesting that it it is a continuation in a way of this 2,000-year-old mathematical tradition that comes from Euclid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, w- I would say about, about the figures that you mentioned that, you know, Tarski is already a bit of a step away because, you know, he introduces models. And a model is something very close to what scientists talk about all the time. You know, they present, when they present their theories in reality. They don't give axioms and so on. They give you some equations to describe physical systems. And then they have to develop these solutions to those equations. Now, solution to equation, that's the simplest form of a model. I mean, the first the idea that Tarski starts with for modeling is you can talk about equations, or isn't it better to talk about a set of solutions of those equations? It's a kind of shift of focus. Right, and so uh, Tarski started. Right, you no, know, he introduced that in the 30s. It didn't have an immediate influence on on, on philosophers. Hmm. <clears throat> well, one last thing I wanted to make sure that we touched on a bit because it was so significant to logical positivism is the distinct the distinction between on on the one hand and on the other the the significance of theoretical and observational terms in a language yes yeah yeah that you know that that became uh, the center of controversy right um the um, it's in scientific practice there's certainly always a difference between the quantities that you can measure directly and the ones that are so involved in the theory that you need theory involved in your measurement procedure, right? Um, But Carnap and his fellows thought that, why can't we make a sharp distinction in the language in which we formalize the theory so that what corresponds to directly measurable qualities, what they call observation predicates, predicates that you can apply directly by observation. And the other predicates, theoretical predicates, you cannot apply them directly, right? When, when you look at something, you can, you can, by looking at something, say it's a magnet, you have to put it close to some iron filings, which is your measurement procedure, right? Okay, now, that, okay, now I think we come to a, a basic theme of the reaction against this, okay, which is that the scientist is not developing his theory in a symbol system. He's developing his theory in natural language, the natural language that you know. And um, it's not the case that the language in which the theory is framed, so he uses mathematics, and you'll see equations, you know, it's sort of, but the, the terms of those equations refer to quantities that he can talk about in the way we talk about any quality, right? So the idea behind the Carnap approach is that really, you should begin by thinking of the theory as a symbol system, and then it has to be translated in some way. And there's no perfect way to translate it, but it has to be something like a translation. So the idea is that um, the theoretical predicates are in the first place, you know, unintelligible. They have to be given somehow, right? And that is, uh, you know, that breaks totally with what is happening when you're looking at what the scientists are doing. Um, 
I mean, there's many, many ways to point out how there's a disparity between the two, right? Um, the scientists uh, will say, here are the principles of the theory. But when you look at those principles, they don't look like the axioms from which he's going to make deduce theorems. The principles are going to be something like a quantity is going to be represented by a vector, or a quantity will be represented by um, a, a Hermitian operator, something like that, you see. In other words, he's telling you how he's going to set up his model. Right? Um, so um, the in ordinary language, in natural language, I should say, not ordinary language, in natural language, there is no sharp distinction between observational terms and theoretical terms. Um, the terms that are used even to report observations are theory-laden. Um, you can carefully distinguish between the different measurement procedures involved, so you can do that. You can distinguish between the objects that can be perceived and cannot be perceived. But in the vocabulary, you know, there's no hygienic observation language. Hygienic meaning having nothing to do with the theory and having never been infected by the theory. You know, it just doesn't exist. So that was a, a big part of the reaction after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Right. You mentioned uh, as soon as I asked the question that this was a big source of controversy that on the one hand, that scientists do not distinguish between the observational and the theoretical vocabulary. They're not working in a symbolic system. They're working in natural language. But before we get to the reaction to this received view, I'm wondering if there are any other broader criticisms that were levied at logical positivism that contributed to the subsequent reaction against it. I mean, before the alternatives were introduced. Yes, yes. Um, it's okay if that's the if that's the the main thing. I think only... that that is the main thing. I think that you know, um, in our correspondence, we discussed a bit how there were really, in what I wanted to talk about, three revolutionary changes. Right um, there. I think the third one would be the semantic approach, right? But the first one would be the turn toward realism, toward scientific realism. Uh, that's happened especially at the Minnesota Center, uh, starting in the 50s, right? The second one was the turn toward history of science that we associate especially with Kuhn, right? And then the third one is this turning from theories to models, this is a semantic approach. And, you know, I think that all three of them um, could be just billed as this is the this is the reaction this is the reaction to the logical positivist heritage, and of course it was happening while that heritage dominated teaching philosophy of science teaching and philosophy of science textbooks. It took a while for any of it to really you know make its impact fell beyond the classroom. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so maybe we should, before we get into the semantic approach, which 
is the main topic of our discussion. I think we should at least briefly touch on these other two revolutions that you just pointed to. And maybe we can start with scientific realism. So for my listeners who aren't familiar with scientific realism, though, I think that it might have come up uh, many, many months ago in an interview with David Papineau. What what is that view, and in what sense did it emerge to dispute ontology? Yeah. Well, I think that um, when it was being developed, um, I'm thinking about the Minnesota Center with Sellers and Feigl and Maxwell, right? It looked like it was a simple, straightforward, single view. But since then, um, the people, even the people who say they are scientific realists, and that is most of the people who write in those terms, um, they're not all agreed about what it is. Okay? Um, I would think that uh, a minimal part of the position is that um, the business of science is to give us literally true theories about what there is in the world. Okay? And that everything that it talks about is supposed to be things that are real. Huh? Um, now, this is about what, what the game is all about, what the game of science is all about. What is the aim, right? Okay. But apparently, not just apparently, I know from many writings that many people who call themselves scientificists add to this a belief that the current the core of the current accepted scientific theories is true. Okay, now, I mean, of course, there's, there's a distinction there. I mean, you could believe that this was the aim without believing anything about how well achieved it was so far, right? Um, or you could believe that it was, um, you know, um, achieved in part or approximately whatever. And they, try, they tend to qualify it a bit. Um, But so, but if you go back to the core, then the contrast is between Jews that say, no, that's not the aim of science. And um, there are different possibilities there. Um, one that has never worked out well is a pure instrumentalism, saying it is just a tool to get around in the world. You know. um, another one, um, the one that I've proposed, uh, constructive empiricism, says the aim is just to be adequate about, on the empirical level. It doesn't really matter about the theoretical entities. You know, as long as it's successful about um, our predictions about measurement, manipulation, you know, um, that is the aim. Uh, and if it is, if this aim is achieved, using theories that go far beyond the observable part, uh, and that those extra things are not really there, doesn't matter. If it works, it works. Okay. So the scientific realist is, doesn't accept that. No. But the, you know, the aim is to give us a literally true theory in which you only talk about things that are real. Just to get some more detail on a couple of issues, you said that most, and I'm, I agree with you on this, that most scientists that you've spoken with think that the core of our scientific theories are true. 
And I'm asking if that is in the sense that, say, the electron has proven such a successful theoretical entity that it's unlikely to be done away with in any successor theory. Well, you know, scientists don't tend to make the distinction that you just made. Um, um, they would all agree that, you know, as, as some level of analysis, the electron will never disappear from the theory, okay? Even though at some point you don't have particles anymore, you only have fields. Nevertheless, you can still say, yeah, but, you know, when you use the word electron, we know roughly what you're referring to, right? But it will never disappear from the science as it develops. But the philosopher, of course, will say, okay, and what about the question whether it is real? Whether the theory is true? Or is this just about what you predict about the successful developments in science? It's not the same. Um, but scientists will not make that distinction because that's not part of their, their life world. You know, um, they, um, I, I was talking to a, a scientist once, a working scientist. Um, uh, he worked in, um, uh, in fluid dynamics, um, but he was very interested to hear about these uh, different um, debates in philosophy, especially about quantum mechanics. And, I, and so he said, I've heard about uh, Bohm's uh, alternative in quantum mechanics. Uh, tell me something about it. So I started explaining to him. And then he said, oh, um, so how can we design an experiment to see which one is right? And I said, no, no, no. It's designed to give you exactly the same predictions as the ordinary theory. Oh, he said, well, then they can just go and play with it in their backyard. And he was no longer interested. So for him, the question which is true doesn't really matter, right? And I think that is probably typical and probably, and I think even it should be typical of a working scientist. Mm -hmm. And then one other question about the scientific realist perspective. So you said that, and again, I'm generally, I mean, I'm to I totally am in agreement with you that this is what how people think of science that its business is to give us literally true theories about what's in the world and everything it refers to should be real. But how does the scientific realist respond to the criticism that the vast majority of every once thought to be successful scientific theory has been displaced? So how should their credence be affected by this in the current, in the, their credence in the reality of the theoretical entities postulated by our currently best accepted or best tested theories. I think I think that the, the important thing is not the um, the existence question here. It's not that if they look, you know, they don't have to be disheartened about what you said about you know successful theories having died one after the other, right? Because when theories are replaced by a successor. The successor isn't even a candidate unless it can recapture the successes of the previous one. Okay, so um, Newtonian mechanics was totally successful uh, about phenomena where the speeds are pretty small compared to the speed of light. In order for relativity theory to be even a candidate to replace it, it has to be able to make essentially the same predictions for that, at that level. So. The successes don't disappear because to be 
to be a candidate for a, being a successor theory, you have to recapture the earlier successes, right? So, in that, so that's why I think that no, scientists doesn't have to be worried about this because they don't look. If you say, what happened to the ether? They say, it doesn't matter, right? Because what was you know, successful about the electromagnetic theory in the 19th century, we still have those successes. And we will always have them, you see, because they were always built into the next one. So the question of existence just disappears. Well, granted that the existence question isn't the one that you find most important. You alluded to your own view earlier that you didn't refer to it as a scientific, a sci- I don't know if you want to call it scientifically anti-realist or a scientific anti-realist position, but it's one of the things that you're very well known for. And just to keep it simple, perhaps with the existence question, how do you think of electrons? Oh. Um, in the way that I think about all theories, which is that the scientist uh, constructs models, okay? And um, these models are meant to fit the phenomena, including new phenomena that are specially manufactured uh, in the laboratory in order to test the theory, right? But now look, in the case of the phenomena, there are the results from direct measurement that have to be accounted for. But the, exper- but the experiments are set up um, with a design that is dictated by the theory. So in order to um, measure a theoretical quantity, what you do is two things. You have direct measurements, and you've got calculations by your own theory. Okay. Um, so that's a, a very indirect link between the model and the phenomenon, because you have to go via your own theory to, to measure a theoretical, a theoretical quantity. Um, so the general picture is the same for every theory. The scientist constructs models, and properly understood, the phenomena have to fit those models in order for the theory to be successful. And now, the way I think about electrons is the way I, the way I, I would think about Freud's ego and it, okay? I don't think his theory is equally successful, right? But um, what matters is that the model he constructs, which is really a mathematical structure, okay? It's a very abstract structure that he makes. That abstract structure has to fit the phenomena, or put it the other way around, the phenomena have to fit inside that structure. That's what success amounts to. Well, turning then to this second revolution, which was Kuhn's, uh, the structure of scientific revolutions, I mean, it really transcends the the philosophical universe, so to speak, since so many people will be familiar with it. But prior to his work, how did philosophers of science treat the history of the subject? And my guess is that since we were talking about how the logical positivists construed science in such a different way from actual scientists, we might think of them as out of touch with scientific practice and consequently the history of science. Well, you know, that's, 
we, we have to be careful not to simplify what they were doing. You see, they were largely in a controversy with the Neo-Kantians. The Neo-Kantians were, the Neo-Kantian philosophy of science is an achievement of its own, okay? I mean, I, I, I respect it very much, and I think that um, Garnap and Reichenbach respected it too. But Can you say what, what that is, what a Neo-Kantian philosopher of science is like? Yeah, the Neo-Kantian, you see, um, what you might call a, a plebeian way of reading Kant is that he's talking about the workings of the mind, right? And he's talking about the categories and the space and time as, sense, as, the, um, your sense, as our sensibility and so on. Um, the Neo-Kantian said, no, if you really look at into what the, the structure that Kant is describing, you're talking about the prime achievement of consciousness, which is science. And so they tried to, uh, they, they talked about the science as having the kind of structure that Kant was displaying. Um, now, I mean, there are people today who uh, think this very seriously, like, like Michael Friedman in Stanford, right? Um, he is quite willing to talk in those terms. Uh, Rickman as well. Okay. Now, but at the time, the Neo-Kantians that they were arguing with they uh, were, I don't know what the words against, they were demurring about relativity. Um, they wanted to insist that um, um, these apparent revolutionary changes in the worldview that were brought by relativity were really um, illusory. They were, they were, um, they, you could be gotten, they could be gotten around so as to say that the, um, the traditional standard view of space and time was still right. And so Reichenbach especially, but also Carnap, argued with these people, right? And part of the reaction to them was to draw away from this traditional way of talking about science. And making things much more abstract. There was a lot of opposition, philosophical opposition, both to relativity theory and later on to quantum theory, um, with attempts to maintain earlier uh, conceptions of, of the world, basically, um, like early conceptions of space and time and motion and, um, and substance. And um, the reaction, both from Carnap and Reichenbach, was to, leave a lot of tradition behind um, in, in his early books, Reichenbach talks almost like a Neo-Kantian. So he's, he's slowly emerging from a Neo-Kantian background, right? Um, it's not, not surprising to me that they would have made their view of that approach to science more and more abstract, more and more logic-oriented in order to get away from those disputes. And that makes sense. 
But then where does Kuhn fit in? What was so novel about his approach and how was it in part a reaction to what was going on with the logical positivists? At first, at first it didn't look very novel. Um, you know, he published first of all in the Encyclopedia of Unified Science, which was being run by the logical positivists and, their, and you know, their, well, not, um, Kuhnhap liked Kuhn's work very much when it was published there. And um, thought was totally in a, you know, there was no opposition at all between the way he approached science and the way that logical positivists approached science. Um, now, he underestimated the basic differences because once you read Kuhn, you really can't anymore see any division between theoretical and rational language. You don't see this kind, you know, don't see that anymore. Um, you, um, you don't see the theories anymore as sets of sentences that are axiomatized and, you know, that you, you don't any longer think that that is how you have to think of the theory in order to really approach the theory and to understand it. Um, and you also begin to realize that the lack of attention to history in that literature, the focus on um, logical problems with just uh, toy examples was not right. You know, it, it took the philosopher too far away from the subject that he was supposedly studying. Um, so I think that the impact was slowly, you know, was felt slowly. You know, it, it did not hit all. That's, it didn't have the right, it didn't have the complete impact right away. No, not at all. Um, but once you start thinking about science, the way you do when you're reading the structure of scientific revolutions, you don't have any taste anymore for the logical exercises about, you know, um, white ravens and uh, black swan, you know, um, that were in all the textbooks and that people spend their time on and, and grew and glean, you know, I mean, no, you don't have any more patience for it. No. So the distinction between theoretical and observational terms in a language disappears after reading Kuhn because his approach was so centered on scientific practice? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, Kuhn himself later on became much more interested in issues about language. But the reason I think that his book has such impact was that he, he was at that point not interested in issues about language. Too many uh, problems had been generated just by this focus on language. Um, not just in philosophy of science. Not just in philosophy of science, all over the place, right? <laughs> yeah. The So now enter the semantic approach, which you wrote, and I'm just going to, I think, quote you, that the semantic approach replaced the methodological framework for philosophers of science. And this starts with Frederick Supi who was a titan of philosophy of science. And I think it was in his dissertation that he developed the semantic approach, if I'm recalling correct, though 
as you also wrote, there there remain questions after this time. But what were the key components of this early formulation of the semantic approach that approached the logical positivist approach that maybe we'll just refer to as the received view now? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I have to look back at my own memory. And, you know, I didn't know Fred's dissertation. All right. I mean, um, and in fact, it was not published outside. It was as his dissertation, right? Um, so he and I both started thinking in the same way because we both had gone back to von Neumann, von Neumann and Berghoff, and, and in my case also Hermann Weil and, and Beth. Um, his teacher, um, Arthur Burks, was a von Neumann fan, and so um, Fred Supi had read a lot of von Neumann and had gotten the same essays as I did that this is how you should talk about scientific theories. Yeah. Um, so in one way, the semantic approach had been developed by these scientists and philosopher scientists well before us, um, but philosophers had not noticed except for one, and that was this um, Dutch logician and philosopher, Avid Bett. Um, he, um, he wrote um, a small uh, textbook during the war, um, and it couldn't be published yet. There was no paper. There was no paper. <laughs> so right after the war, there was paper, and he was going to publish it. And he was rereading it, and he realized suddenly, by thinking about von Neumann, right? And this isn't right. This positivistic way of talking about what implies what in the scientific theory is not right. And um, so he was the first philosopher to take the lessons to heart from these scientists. Um, now, these, of course, these were theoretical scientists, you know, uh, and, and advanced work in the foundations of physics, really. Um, besides for Neumann, there was uh, Hermann Weil, and Hermann Weil actually did the best thing, but um, it was totally unnoticed. Um, I think it was around 1940, uh, that he wrote an essay in a festival for Husserl called The Ghost of Modality. And um, he talks about intuitionistic logic, modal logic, uh, quantum logic, and he shows how they all have a certain format that, you know, you could actually apply thinking about scientific theories um, in a logical way. Um, I, I found the essay because I was interested in Husserl in a a book in the library, basically, right? Um, nobody in philosophy paid any attention to this because the people interested in Husserl were not interested in philosophy or physics, right? Um, so, okay. Okay. So I've been backtracking now from in 1950, whatever it was, seven, nine, I forget, you know, late, very late 50s, Fred Sutti wrote his dissertation and didn't publish it yet. Um, but he and I were talking, and we realized that what I was coming to through Beth, he had come to already through von Neumann. And then he organized this uh, um, conference in Illinois, in Urbana. And, you know, he, he said famously, this is the night that the received view died, 
Okay, well, it's night in, it's night in, in you know, uh, when his conference opened, right? I, well, that's overstating it a bit, obviously. But in, in that conference, Hempel and Putnam both spoke, and Hempel used the term, the standard view of science. And Putnam used the term, the received view of science. Now, you can see Hempel was totally in it. No. He was totally in this heritage from logical positivists. And he called it standard because he thought it was standard, right? Then Putnam calls it received is because he was already beginning to criticize it. Like the received view, yeah, when you say that, you say, oh, well, it's the received view, yeah, yeah okay. You know. um, so it's, it's true that that's when it began, right? And then it took off really quickly, um, partly because both Fred and I had students, you know, and um, both of us were giving talks and conferences about it. Um, and the, uh, the, the message was, you know, the basic message was, turn away from theory as such, turn to the models. When you're talking about a scientific theory, you start talking about a set of models of that theory. Uh, you mentioned Urbana Champagne, and I, f I found this so funny when I was reading that the received view um, died, according to Soupy, on the opening night of this convention, and it was the, I think, called the Illinois symposium on the structure of scientific revolutions. But was so what was so funny to me about this was that there were 1,200 people present at this philosophy of science conference in the middle of nowhere in Illinois. And you just would never have that today. I mean, the, the philosophical, the academic world has just changed so much. Uh, so I just, I got a chuckle out of reading that. But Returning to one of the central tenets, I guess, harking back to when our conversation began, you said that the positivist thought of a scientific theory in this Euclidean mathematical sense where it was a set of sentences. Just how did Supi conceive of a scientific theory? What sort of thing is it? And I think that this is a, a central question that should help us distinguish between the received view and then the semantic approach? Well, I mean, I can, I can just give you in, in simple terms, you know, this view as such, a semantic approach, right? um, which is, so the models of the theory are mathematical structures. They are, to put it in the simplest way, they're the solutions to the equations that the scientist presents as his theory. The equations but the other way is our description of the models. Okay. Um, a solution of those equations is one specific model, right? Um, and this, but secondly, you could say that, you know, you could say that about equations that don't have any connection with the world, right? Second part is that the theory is about something. Unlike a mathematical theory, it's about something, right? Um, and it is about something because 
the models are candidates for the representation of phenomena in a certain domain. And that's that has to be specified. So, you know, I think in the in the in my paper I give the example of uh, a diffusion equation. And um, if suppose you say this is my theory, right? Well, the thing is that you could be talking about um, uh, temperature, you know, how a diffusion as a heat process, or you could talk be talking about the diffusion as gas, ex, you know, expanding gases, right? Um, whether you're talking about heat or about gases, those are two different things. And so in order to ask you what is your theory, I have to ask you, first of all, what's your equation? And secondly, what is it meant to represent? And then when you say what it's meant to represent, then I have to ask you, well, what are the measurement procedures? See? And all of that is part of the theory. The theory itself specifies the measurement procedures. Okay? Some of them are direct measurements that you, know, you could do without having been educated, uh, and some you couldn't. You couldn't design without knowing the theory. Okay. Um, so sometimes, you know, um, when Ronald Geary was one of the people working in that approach a bit later, uh, he tried to simplify it and he said it, he said, the theory is a set of models plus hypotheses about what things in the world fit the models. Well, it's a bit oversimplified to put it that way, because you're not talking about, you know, um, what the fitting amounts to, and you have to in order to make it precise. But as a, as a quick, you know, 25 word or less, um, it's a set of models plus the hypotheses about what things in the world, um, you know, fit into those models. And returning to something you said at the beginning of your response, because the theory is about something in a way that the mathematical theory of the positivists isn't, the semantic approach has us take the language that the theory is couched in more literally then than the positivist does. And then this in turn this can be seen as the reaction to the positivists not treating the philosophy of science the way that scientists do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, in, pra in, in philosophical practice, right, I mean, how do people in the semantic approach do philosophy of science and how is it different from the way that Carnap and his friends did philosophy of science? Um, there is a language remains a central part, okay? But not in the same way. Um, in the logical positivist tradition, the language that you want to talk about was a language in which the theory as a whole could be formulated, in which the theory could be axiomatized. And, you know, there were attempts to, to give examples of this, not very successful, right? Um, because when scientists even at the foundational level, present theories, they don't put it in that form, right? Okay. Um, 
in the semantic approach, you say, yeah, language is important, but it's a very small language that is important. It's just the language in which the equations are expressed. So the basic sentences are all, all have the same form. They all have the form quantity Q has value X or quantity Q has value in interval Y, something like that, right? Just that, the quality has value. That's it. Every single sentence has the same form, right? Now, um, when you then ask for the interpretation of those sentences, um, quantity Q is linked to a mathematical entity in the model. It says, oh, Q stands for that, like that permission operator or that factor, okay? Um, that vector function. Um, and in that model, right, there are places where it has this value, right? Um, so these sentences, that interpretation is by telling, telling you what they, what they describe in the model, right? And then there are connections between them. Um, let me give a very simple example. Suppose that your model is just, you're talking about, going to just talk about things having a color, red or blue or white, okay? So then your model would be, uh, the basic space in your model would be the, the color spectrum. And the quantity would be color, right? And then say, quantity, color has value X, means something like, um, you know, it's red or it's blue or it's white, and then the value is just one of these wavelengths or whatever you want have there, right? Well, then one sentence will be the, the, this quantity, the color of the object, is red. Another one will be the quantity of the this quantity, the color of this object is blue. And you can see that they are logically incompatible, right? So there are logical relations between this because of the interpretation in the model. And um, then you can define things like and and or and so on, but they just have to do with the content of the sentence. It's not syntactic structure. So there is a model, there is a language, but it's a very small language. It's not a language in which the theory as a whole is being expressed. It's just the language you have to need to give you the equations and talk about the models. That's, that's all. So Sometimes we were very, um, sometimes we were arrogant. Sometimes we were very dismissive about the logical positivist approach saying they were so language oriented. But of course we, we couldn't mean that language has to disappear. No, of course not. It's just you have to give it the right place. Well, I'd like to take a little bit of a a detour though, not leaving the semantic approach, but as you know, there, I've done a number of episodes recently on quantum mechanics and the interpretations of quantum theory, but what is the relationship of the semantic approach to what you call the, the quantum mechanics interpretation wars? So how did the semantic approach look at things differently from the received view? Because quantum mechanics, as you already mentioned, or quantum theory is one of these three big theories, uh, I think you referenced evolution and relativity that came before or around the time of the logical positivists and has been the focus for much of the past hundred years. 
Well, you know, um, I was talking about the prehistory of the uh, semantic approach, saying von Neumann and Birkhoff and Weil, right? Well, the, the first paper to mention the prehistory is an article by von Neumann and Birkhoff about logic of quantum mechanics. And now when we look at it, we say, that is the semantic approach to quantum theory, okay? Um, so, in other words, it was in 1936 that the first item was really published, though nobody recognized it as such, right? Um, at the same time, you know, this comes from von Neumann, who had a very specific interpretation of, of the quantum theory. He, formal, he didn't formalize it, but he, uh, be, not in the sense of the logician, he didn't formalize in the sense of the logician, but he presented the mathematical theory systematically, okay? Um, and, um, so, you know, the semantic approach was in there from the beginning, you know, because the way we want to talk about theories in general is exactly the way in which Birkham von Neumann talked about quantum mechanics, right? So it was immediate that this was a, a playing field. This was the place where we would, you know, uh, take up arms, so to speak. Um, and so in the, you know, in the interpretations um, after the Second World War, right, um, we could see this actually going on in many places, but mostly by scientists. So um, in Switzerland, there were Jauch and Piron developing what they call the logical approach to quantum mechanics. In Italy, um, Toraldo and um, Della Chiara. Um, in Germany, Middlestadt, in uh, Finland, so on and so forth. They were all doing this. They were all mathematical physicists, basically, working on foundations, right? And philosophers stepped in. Um, we all went, on it, all went at it in this logical way, which was basically the semantic approach. Um, Jeffrey Boop, who had been a student of Bohm, um, then, you know, developed what he called the logical interpretation, the logical uh, interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, and later on showed how there was a whole array of things that could be put in that, that form. So that's the connection between the two, that a lot of the uh, work was suddenly being done in, in that specific form. Hmm. Something particular that I want to ask about, you already mentioned von Neumann and Bohr, but how did Bohr conceive of the division between micro and macroscopic in nature? And then how did von Neumann respond to this? There, you know, there were two big issues, okay. Um, and there was a sociological change between before the Second World War and after the Second World War. Okay. Um, Bohr and the Copenhagen scientists like Heisenberg were very influential, right? And many scientists, I think, simply followed them. Um, von Neumann, to begin, didn't think that he was uh, doing anything that they were not doing, that he was just actually explaining what they meant. Um, there, the, the Copenhagen view was this. Yes, the, in quantum mechanics, the physicist is building models of the phenomena, but he only builds a model 
of what's on the other side beyond his instrument. There's always this dividing line that he only makes a model of what is beyond the instrument. Now, if he wants to model the instrument too, fine, but then he steps one step back and the defining line is a bit closer, that's all, okay? Um, so that means that you cannot have a, you can never think that the world is a quantum mechanical system because there's no defining line anymore if you say that, right? So this was the point, their point of view, their, um, um, you know, observer, it's always observer relative or observation relative or measurement relative, right? Um, the big opposition to that was not, you know, for Neumann was totally in, in accord with that. He tried to explain it. He tried to make it clear that you could consistently say this, right? Um, When it was not accepted, it was in Russia. In Russia, they thought that uh, the Copenhagen people were idealists and um, you couldn't be a Marxist and be an idealist. You had to be a realist, okay? So they, and they, you know, they, their physicists wrote about it in very interesting ways too. Bokinchev, for example, it's just mechanics. It's just mechanics, just like Newtonian mechanics, okay? Um, that point of view, you know, was not there in the West. Uh, until after the Second World War. And then suddenly you see it cropping up all over the place um, with um, rival interpretations of quantum mechanics and a big shift because they wanted to use quantum mechanics in cosmology. Now, cosmology is a theory about the world as a whole. So if you want to use quantum mechanics there, you have to say the world is a quantum mechanical system. And so then you can say it's observer relative because there's no observer outside the world. And um, so these new interpretations, the many worlds interpretation, Bohm's interpretation, you know, on these, they all start with, you know, it's not observer relative. We're talking about it is, everything is a mechanical system, a quantum mechanical system. Um, but then, you know, there was no single way to do that. There were many different ways to do that. Right? Um, all of them having their difficulties, obviously, they were all being developed. I mean, you know, lots of problems to solve, right? But it's very interesting to see this big change, you know, that happened in, you know, this, that suddenly this, this way of um, approaching the theory so that it could be a theory that would, you know, not have this observer relative limitation became suddenly the gospel, right? Now, that wasn't broken until Rovelli in the 90s, okay? So I can't, I won't talk about that because that's after the period we were talking about, but, but um, it, it's the main dominant among the interpretations. Um, nevertheless, looking at it, you know, from a logical point of view, uh, it was possible, if you wanted, to maintain some of the insights of the Copenhagen School against um, Sure, sure, sure. But you know, I'll, I'll, before you talk about that, I'll just mention one thing. 
because I pulled up a quote from you that I thought was really nice. Ed, you said that von von Neumann had already given the correct response in the 1930s to Bohr. And it is, there is no dividing line in nature, but only one drawn by the modeler who chooses what to model. And I thought that was really good. Correct. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and, but for Neumann, I think, didn't think he was disagreeing. He thought he was explaining. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But now please continue. <laughs> okay. Well, so after the war, uh, everybody working on it took the point of view that not observer relative. Okay. It's not observer relative. It's just about physical systems in the safe forward, you know, way in the way they always did it, they always did it in mechanics. Right. Okay. But then the question was, could you still maintain some of the Copenhagen views um, where there's still ones that, you know, um, you could. And what that meant was, uh, does every interpretation have to have hidden variables? Um, or could you, hidden variables meaning things that really made a physical difference, but that were not coming out in the experiments that were being done, right? Whereas the Copenhagen view would have said, no, if it doesn't come out in the experiments, there are, there's nothing there. Right? And the answer is, yeah, yes, you, you could. You know, and I'll tell you what is the very, very basic point on which these interpretations differ, um, that are more Copenhagen and less Copenhagen. Um, suppose you have two quantities. Q and R, let's say, right? And the theory tells you they can have certain values. And when you do make your measurements, unfortunately, there's no certainty about which value you'll find. Now, this was typical in quantum mechanics, that there would be indeterminism in your measurement results. Um, you make the same measurement twice, you'll get, you may get two different answers, okay? Um, but, the theory will tell you there's a certain statistical distribution in your answers. For instance, you know, you have some uranium here and a Geiger counter. There's a nice statistical pattern in, in the number of clicks over a long run, over the long run. So we call these the measurement statistics for that quantity. Now, here's the question. Suppose two quantities have the same measurement statistics. Are they the same quantity? Are they just two different, you just have two different names for the same quantity? Or could there be different quantities? Because in fact, there's a reference to something that's not coming out in the measurement, in the, in the measurement statistics. Okay. Um, sometimes people use the word realism there and they say second alternative we call realist. But I mean, that's, you know, a confusing adaptation of the word realist really, right? I mean, both are very, straightforward ways of talking about physical systems. So the, the Copenhagen line would be, no, that is, you know, nothing there that doesn't come out in the measurement results. And the anti-Copenhagen view, the one people who put in hidden variables, they say, sorry, you could have two qualities, same measurement statistics, but they are measuring something different. And uh, so what the 
the actual measurement procedure is might depend on the context in which it's done, for example. Um, you can see how the Copenhagen line is a very empiricist line, right? They are not willing to give, uh, um, they, don't, they don't respect things that don't come out on a level, where you see the measurement results. Whereas the um, things like um, the Bromian interpretation, right? Um, they have a different point of view about this. Yeah. Well, I think unless you wanted to talk about Rovelli, which I'm I'm fine with, which I'm fine with doing, I thought that uh, maybe it would be a good time to turn to perhaps briefly some criticisms of the semantic method. Okay, that well, one, and I'm sure that there are some that I'm not aware of that you might tell me, but one that a prima facie criticism that just occurred to me as I read is that while I think presenting a theory means specifying some models or some structures, one of the important ideas, though, of the semantic approach is to return to how scientists think of and employ scientific theories. But I don't think of scientists as thinking of scientific theories as abstract mathematical structures. So this just seemed somewhat incongruous to me. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, I think that um, the more, the more you're logically inclined, the more you will think that way, but um, it's not obvious to begin. I agree. So for instance, you know, the first thing when people say model, they, they, they should think about model airplanes um, or other little physical models that we have. Uh, or big ones. So here in the Bay Area, you know, there's this huge model of, of uh, the San Francisco Bay um, up, up in Marin County, and you can go and visit it. And they built it in order to study um, water flow in the Bay. Okay? And what would be the effect of uh, silting, for example. But you know what? When they use that model, what what do they use? They use the numbers that come out of the measurements, of the measurements they're making on this, on this, in this model. And as a matter of fact, for the last 20 years, you can go and visit it still, and it's still there working, but the scientists are now just using a computer model, right? For the same purpose. Because it, the way I would say it is, what mattered what was important about this big structure that they made in Marin County was not any of the physical details. It was the structure in the abstract sense of structure. And in fact, it's the mathematical structure of the physical model that is the real model. That is the model that the scientists use. Right? Um, so I think that, um, when they talk about physical models, whether real or imagined, right? Nevertheless, what they infer from what they do with the model, right? Could be duplicated, you know, in a computer model, which is a mathematical object, right? Now, again, you know, what you see in your computer screen doesn't look fit. Doesn't look mathematical. It look you know you see lines, but actually 
What it is, of course, it depicts them out of, out of structure, right? Yeah. So really, at bottom, it's all mathematics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I when I hear when I hear model, I think domain relations interpretation function, and I definitely I don't think model airplane. So I think that that clears up the the confusion there. Yeah. Well, you know, you're thinking of it as a the way it's studied in logic, right? Um, and you know the models, right? But you know, you know, different logicians will be more or less that way. So Abraham Robinson, you mentioned, right? Um, he talks about families of models as families of mathematical structures, and the interpretation sort of comes along the way. You see what I mean? Whereas in your logic textbook, everything is about the interpretation functions. So you know, it's ways of thinking about the same thing. Well, maybe then it's a good time to turn to epistemology in the philosophy of science. And I think we should, again, start by discussing what was replaced. And the first thing that comes to mind is the hypothetico-deductive method or model of scientific inquiry, because I learned that in high school, and I remember thinking it was the end-all, be-all of what science ought to be. But maybe you could just say what this method was and how it relates to the, the formal view where theories were treated as sets of sentences in the mathematical tradition. So, you know, um, there's a basic idea, which is certainly right, that if you have a theory, right, and the theory implies that something will happen under certain circumstances, then you go and check and see if it happens under those circumstances. And um, if it doesn't, then you say there's something wrong with the theory. And if it does, then you say, well, that bears out the theory. Okay, so far, so good, right? Um, now, when they develop this idea uh, in the logical positivist tradition, the theory, the set of sentences, the implications were things you could deduce from the theory plus you're given about the circumstances, right? And then they said, if, if it actually happens, that confirms the theory. Okay. Now, the fact is that once you put it in that form, you very quickly trivialize it. Because if, if it's true that just a verified implication is a confirmation, right? You say, look, Suppose that theory T implies A and A is true, right? Well, theory T plus X also implies A in that case. So it verifies T plus X as well, right? Um, hmm, that's funny, you know, because T plus X could be T plus anything you like, right? There's something, this looks like it's sort of, sort of trivial there, right? And um, um, it's, just it's a really oversimplified thing. Um, the other thing is, of course, they try to say then how much does it verify? How much does it confirm? And um, you know, it can't be quantity. I mean, you know, the, the sun rises every day, but you think because you know the number of sunrises, you know, makes all the difference to how how this theory is confirmed. Usually, they do one experiment and they say, hey, it worked out, right? Something else is going on. Something else is going on. Um, 
So that was a very oversimplified idea. Um, and you got these uh, these puzzles about, you know, um, um, the ravens and the, I, I don't think we should start going back to those things now. I mean, we could do it, <laughs> but everybody would see them in the, right. Okay, so it all just, you know, came to be thought of as, this is so naive that, you know, we don't work with, with that idea anymore. It's, it's, you know, the basic idea is still there, but that's it. So what are we going to have instead? Now, here's a real case in science. And Darwin realized that, you know, he didn't have hypothetical deductive confirmation for his theory. Okay. Um, nevertheless, he said, look, look at everything that I found. Isn't that support for the theory? No. And he pointed out that uh, for electromagnetism too, you couldn't just go by you know, confirm confirming by observable events. There was a lot more to the theory that didn't come out that way. So what happens instead? And um, I think that's something, one of the first really nice things that happened when uh, I was, when uh, it wasn't, you know, just, Fred Supi and me and Ron Geary, you know, um, saying semantic approach was when my student, Elizabeth Lloyd, said, let's do this in philosophy of biology. And she took up Darwin's theory and she an analyzed what kind of evidential support he had. Um, very specific cases. Analyzed it as he was building a model and the model included some assumptions about, you know, how the model would work. And whereas the model is, it's, itself is not like a hypothesis you can test, you can go and see if those assumptions actually can be checked. And if it all works out, then, you know, you have a you have an evidential support of a sort that is not recognized in the traditional view. Um, since then, I, I've tended to give examples from physics instead. Um, for example, you know, um, the Cartesians really objected to Newton by saying that he's introducing occult qualities, mass and force. The only thing you can measure directly is what you measure with your ruler and your clock. In other words, kinematic qualities, qualities of time and space. That's all you can measure directly. And now Newton has introduced mass and force. They are occult qualities. He's, you know, this is not real science, they were saying, because you can't measure them. And the Newtonian scientists said, yes, we can measure them. And then they developed, you know, experimental setups in which you could say, measure the mass, measure the force. But how did they do that? Well, the design of the measurement apparatus is dictated by Newton's theory. Now, if we think of this as an attempt to confirm, then it's just a vicious circle. It's just circular. Because then the premises include his theory, right? And so um, no wonder if you're going, but it's not true, it's no wonder that you can confirm because it could turn out wrong, it could turn out false. Nevertheless, your measurement, even if you, if you design your measurement using the theory, the measurement result may still not fit the theory. And so there's still a question, is the, 
is the theory going to be borne out by this procedure or not? Much more complicated than anything you could discuss with like hypothetical reduction theory, um, method or what Hempel called confirmation principles. You know, it's, um, it's about model testing and uh, model testing and uh, using theory mediated measurements for your quantities. You can talk about this very straightforwardly within the semantic approach. You couldn't make any sense of that as long as you were in the received in the received view. One further question I have then is after all of this, by what criteria ought we to judge the value of a scientific theory? Do these change whether we take the semantic approach or the approach it displaced? Do they have different criteria for the value of a scientific theory? Not in practice. You know, the, the received view and the semantic view are both attempts to get clear on what exactly scientific procedures are, right? And I think that what those real procedures are, that's there in the world of science. That's what's happening and what science scientists do. Um, I do think that with the semantic view, we became much clearer. We got to understand it much better, right? But no, there is no nothing that would imply advice to the scientist to change what he does, no. Well, most of what we've been talking about, so logical positivism aside, but the semantic approach that we've been discussing centers around events, philosophy in the second half of the 20th century. And just toward finishing, I'm wondering what candidates you see as promising replacements to the semantic approach, if any. Well, you know, it's, it's hard to say when you're in, in the middle of things, right? Um, I think that um, philosophy of science has compartmentalized a lot. Um, and the semantic approach was still very logic-oriented. Um, there are people in philosophy of science who are, who are very logic-oriented today. Um, and so, but I do not see them as uh, having this, you know, huge effect uh, on how things are done generally or how, how they're going to be done in the textbooks, right? Um, because it is too, it requires too much background for, you know, people like if somebody is working, a philosopher of science is working on archaeology, for example. Do they need a great deal of logical background? No, right? So why should they study, um, you know, logic of quantum mechanics? I mean, no, no. I mean, um, I don't, I, I can't help but think that these very logic oriented philosophers of science are going to be 
important, but you know, not at the center. No, not what you will see most of, right? Um, quite on the on the opposite side, there is the movement that's called science and practice, the science and pra philosophy of science and practice. Um, it was very vigorous for a while with lots of conferences and lots of uh, papers. And then I think maybe, you know, it did, you know, didn't seem necessary to be very purist about it anymore. And so, um, you know, it's the, um, um, it influenced what was happening everywhere, I think. In all parts of philosophy of science, I think there was some impact of the philosophy of science and practice movement. Um, again, I don't see that it will simply take over everything, no. Um, I think there's another third, uh, another thing that I think was an important development that, that for a while a lot of people were working in that area and that's scientific representation. Um, uh, there's a new book coming out by Mauritia Suarez. Um, so the subject is still continuing, but again, it, there was a period of very vigorous, very widespread uh, work uh, that maybe is not quite so vigorous now. Um, the thing is that, you know, there's, I think, here's what I would say about philosophy of science itself. Um, many areas of philosophy, the problems are totally self-generated by the philosophers. In philosophy of science, you know, you go and look at something that's real out in the world, maybe the sciences, and find the problems there. Um, and um, I would say that's something to be said in favor of philosophy of science. Well, boss, it has been so cool to talk with a living legend in the philosophy of science. So thanks so much for doing this with me, and especially for covering some fairly esoteric uh, material. Yeah, I know it's been, I know some of that's quite esoteric, but, you know, this is the history of the 20th century, and it's, and all of it is important, I think. Now, thank you for doing the interview with me. I really enjoyed it.